Our text tonight is verses 6 through 8 in 1 Peter chapter 2. And I want to ask you as we begin, if you have come and you believe in God tonight, who is the God that you believe in? How do you know what he's like? And of course, for those of us who know the Lord and are believers, we would say that we know him by how he has revealed himself in the word. And when we ask the question, what is his character? We look to the word. But the sad thing is that many, if they have any belief in God, even believers have a very warped view of God. And some want to try and modify him so he fits more with how they would like him to be rather than how he has revealed himself. So that he fits more with their ideas and with their agendas. And some make the conclusions about God as being less than good or, or less than generous. Sometimes you speak to people and say, oh, God, if he exists, is, is a vindictive God. And they make their conclusions purely as they see their own experience or the difficulties of life or the suffering and the troubles of this broken world. And they don't want anything to do with God. They do not see him in any way as gracious or merciful. Maybe that's you tonight. Maybe you've come and you see God like that. And the problem is that people are blind to the truth of God. They don't see the spiritual reality. And ultimately, we need our minds, we need our hearts, we need our eyes, our ears to be open spiritually in order for us to truly comprehend the truth of God and to know God and to see him as he really is. And friends, this is a gift of his grace. This is a work that he does. And God has been pleased to reveal himself. He's done so in creation, in his word, and then most gloriously in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we're given to see with spiritual eyes, then we know that God is good, that he's gracious and kind and merciful and faithful. And the God in whom we believe is not one of our own creating, but as the scriptures show us. And so we're able to say with the psalmist in Psalm 52.1, the goodness of God endures continually. The psalmist speaks there of how the goodness of God pervades all of life, the, the blessings of common grace. Even those who reject God and reject his goodness know something of his kindness. But those who really experience his goodness are his children. Those who by sovereign grace have come to believe in God in the real and right way, who know God through Jesus Christ alone. And that's why we're able to see his goodness and his kindness and his graciousness even when we look at creation. It's been a beautiful day today. And as we look around and see something of the beauty of creation, those of us who know the Lord and see the, the vastness and the wonder of it all, the, the incredible variety in creation, the intricate design of the created order, all these things declare the glory of our God and the goodness of our God. You know, what did we sing? Heaven above is softer blue, earth around is sweeter green. Something lives in every hue, Christless eyes have never seen. The goodness of God. It's also seen in the way that although men reject God and are at enmity with him and in rebellion against him, he does not instantly destroy them. But is merciful, says that he allows the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. But most of all, the goodness of God is seen in his willingness to save sinners. 
and to rescue those who deserve his wrath and his punishment, that he should send his own son to be the saviour, his own son to go to a cruel cross and to die in the place of all who would ever trust in him, to secure their deliverance and their eternal blessing, to give them life. And if we are those who have been saved by sovereign grace and received eternal life in Christ, then above all others, we should know how good God is. Yes, God is good in earth and sky. And that's what Peter really is focusing on in this passage, the goodness of God towards his people, the privileges that we have in Christ. We don't deserve anything from him, and yet he has poured out his love upon us, his grace upon us. We cannot earn these things. We cannot earn favor now. All that we receive are gifts of grace from the giver of every good and perfect gift. And as we've been working through these verses, we've seen that these spiritual privileges in verse 4, they come to us in Christ alone. By God's grace, we came to Christ for salvation. Every blessing comes to us in and through him. Coming to Christ, abiding in Christ, you know, knowing him in that way. And it speaks of him as the living stone, the one who is life, who gives his own life to all who believe, the one who is indeed risen and the conqueror of death. And the tragedy is, as we look through, we saw that this living stone, the perfect cornerstone in God's building of his eternal house, the one who alone can give life, was rejected by men. But this Lord Jesus Christ was chosen and precious in the sight of God. And God said, no, he is the perfect cornerstone. And it's only in him that we can know true life. And again, I ask you tonight, do you know that life? The world says, come into the world and, and see what life is really like. It's no life. It's disappointing, ruining, sinful. Can't give you an eternity of hope. Is you no hope at all. And if you're here tonight and not a Christian, the Bible says that you are without hope, without God, that you are a sinner, that you face a lost eternity. But Jesus is the way. He's the truth. He's the life. And you can be forgiven. And you can be made right with God. And you can know these privileges for yourself if you come in repentance and faith to the Savior. So will you? Will you repent and believe? You know, by God's grace, when we are given those gifts of repentance and faith, then we know these privileges and we've seen them. Verse 5, union with Christ. If we're believers, we have the very life of Christ in us. We are united to him as living stones built up, spiritual house. The cornerstone is Christ. God dwells in our hearts, dwells in the hearts of his redeemed people, both individually and together. And then we've been looking in recent times as well as the second privilege of having access to God as priests. Peter explains that we're a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. We looked at those last time. But we have access to God. We can come boldly to the throne of grace. And then tonight we look at something else which is so wonderful. And that is this, that if you are a believer... You are secure in Jesus forever. That's a wonderful thing. If we are believers, we have security in the Lord. We have confidence that in Christ we are safe for time and eternity. What a wonderful privilege to be given. Then all the uncertainty of this world, if we are in the Lord Jesus, 
we need not fear what tomorrow may bring. Look at verse 6. Therefore it is also contained in the scripture. Behold I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone. Elect precious. And he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. And the vital emphasis that Peter has there. Under the inspiration of the spirit. Is not being disappointed. Not being ashamed. Not discovering that the one in whom we put our hope will fail. Peter moves on and he introduces these wonderful truths from the Old Testament. Now, these quotes that are there, they are not direct quotes, but they are summaries of truth from the Old Testament. And so he says, this is what the Scripture says. This is the Word of God. This is where our confidence is. And the first one is a summary taken from Isaiah 28, verse 16. And that says, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone of leprechauns. And so this chief cornerstone refers to Christ. Living stone, the foundation of the spiritual house, risen again. And so we see that that same emphasis being brought to bear. He is alive. He is the conqueror of death. He he rules, he reigns. And uh, Paul also quotes this verse in Romans 9. And so it's an important Old Testament text in the preaching of the apostles. And it speaks of Messiah, speaks of Christ, and promised that when Christ came, he would be the cornerstone to fashion the new temple of God, the new house of God. And so we should take note of this. That's why it says, behold, behold, it demands our attention. This stone which is laid in Zion, the city of God. Now in Isaiah, that's referring to Jerusalem. But Peter is speaking of it in a a figurative sense. Zion being the realm of the new covenant of grace. And so Peter is emphasizing this new covenant in Christ. And the great many blessings of that new covenant. And he says this Christ, this chief cornerstone, is the elect stone chosen of God. God's appointed deliverer. Precious above all to God. The unique one. The only hope that we have. Now, friends, very significant imagery in Jewish thinking. You know, if you were to go back to 1 Kings 6, then when Solomon built the temple, it was built with stones that had already been prepared before they were even brought to the site. So they'd already been shaped and cut all according to the plans of how the temple was to be built. And in fact, all the stones would be marked with a number so that they could be laid in exactly the right place so that they could be fitted together. Dear friends, it's wonderful to think, isn't it? That before the foundation of the world, when God purposed to build the spiritual temple of covenant people under the new covenant, not only was the chief cornerstone appointed, but all the stones set apart. All prepared, all purposed to fit together in a perfect pattern by the Spirit of God. You know, if you're a believer this night, you are one of those appointed stones. You are being shaped into that spiritual new covenant temple. It's wonderful grace that God should set his favor upon you. And not only that, but quoting from Isaiah, Peter says that Christ was not just a living stone, verse 4, the elect stone, but the precious cornerstone. And that word precious means of the utmost value, irreplaceable, totally fitting for the precious Savior, the Lord Jesus. He is the one without equal. 
You know, maybe you remember a number of weeks ago I explained about the importance of the cornerstone. And the word here means to the extreme angle. And so the cornerstone was essential to the building because it sets all the angles. And so if it's correct, then all the other angles will be correct. It sets the right lines, both vertically, horizontally. All the angles of the building are kept in symmetry by that one cornerstone. And all the other stones are laid where they are because of the cornerstone. Now, in the building of the new covenant household of God, the church of Christ, the cornerstone had to be perfect. And, of course, it's Christ, the perfect one. He sets everything correctly, everything perfectly. He'll never fail to do that. And it's in this context that Peter then says, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. He who trusts in the perfection of the cornerstone will never be disappointed, will never be uh, put to shame. You know, as believers, dear friends, do you realize the incredible privilege of knowing Jesus Christ, of knowing him and to know that you will never be disappointed in him? He will never let you down. There's a famous hymn which says, Christ is made the sure foundation, Christ, the head and cornerstone, chosen of the Lord and precious, binding all the church in one, holy Zion's help forever and her confidence alone. The Lord Jesus Christ is our confidence because as the perfect cornerstone, he binds the church together in perfection and will never be ashamed. You know, the opposite of not being put to shame is being ashamed. And the idea is of when you put your hope in someone or something and then, you know, they've let you down or it's let you down and it's just devastating. That will never happen with Jesus Christ. He'll never give us cause for shame. He never will disappoint us. He'll never fail to provide for us. He'll never fail to fulfill all his good promises. Isaiah 50 verse 7, The Lord God will help me, therefore I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. That's the confidence of one who believes in the Lord. You'll never be disappointed. You know, you think of those amazing verses, Romans 8, so familiar to us. But I think sometimes so familiar that we sometimes fail to appreciate the wonder of them. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God. To those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. And you stop and you say, well, are you sure? Are you sure that's going to happen? Can we know that, you know, these things, they might be said, but how do we know that we're not going to be disappointed? Well, Paul goes on. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor powers nor things present nor things to come, nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Never be put to shame. 
Never be disappointed in the Saviour. Now, it's interesting. If you go back to Isaiah 28, 16, the direct quote says the same thing, but in the following way. It says, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, and then this, whoever believes will not act hastily. You say, well, that's an interesting thing to say at the end. Whoever believes won't be in a hurry. What does it mean? It means that we'll never be in a position where we'll be hurrying to run away because of fear that God has let us down. That'll never be the case. We'll never be ashamed. We'll never be disappointed. We never will have to run from the Lord because he has failed to do as he said he would do. It's just not going to happen because the Lord is faithful. One puts it like this. Often on the rock I tremble, faint of heart and weak of knee, but the mighty rock of ages never trembles under me. And that's the promise. We'll never be disappointed. Never disappointed in the Lord Jesus. As our so wonderful privilege, secure in Christ. And then the second thing that we want to draw out tonight in verse 7 Another wonderful privilege, not only to be secure in Christ, but flowing from that, a love for Christ. A love for Christ. You know, Peter said, you're united to him. You have access to the Lord. You're secure in him, and you love him. You love him. Look at verse 7. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. There's precious value for you who believe. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, they stumble being disobedient to the word and to which they also were appointed. Now, just a very brief comment on the original language. There are some who argue that the mention of preciousness actually isn't referring to the Lord Jesus. So those two little words, he is, have been inserted. Now, that may well be the case. But you see there, if that's the case, it gives the honourable status to the believer by grace. And, you know, there's absolutely truth in that. Of course there is. You know, we have been made precious in Christ. Immense privileges in contrast to those who are disobedient. But for this evening, we'll stay with what we've got in front of us. And so Peter uses this Old Testament truth to make a very real contrast. And using the picture of Christ as the stone, he speaks of the stone the builders rejected becoming the chief cornerstone, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. Now he begins by saying that this precious value, the value of Jesus, belongs to those who believe. And so if we've been saved by grace... We have been brought to see the infinite value and preciousness of the Lord Jesus, and we love him. We love him. We've been given the privilege of of seeing how precious he is, and we love him because he first loved us. The love of Christ has been shed abroad in our hearts. And so every true believer places his hope solely upon Christ. Past, present, future, all bound up in Christ. All our treasures bound up in him. We prize him. All our affection flows towards him. All our hope flows from him. And we love him. We love his name. He is our salvation. He is all our desire. 
to you who believe he is precious, not only precious to God, but precious to his people, those who believe. Do you know, friends, those who don't believe, they don't see the Lord Jesus as precious. They don't have any affection for him. They even use his name in such appalling ways, and they don't want him, and they reject him, and for them he is a stone of stumbling, a rock of offence. They don't see anything desirable in the Lord Jesus Christ. But for those of us who believe he's the fairest of 10,000, he is beloved, he is honoured, he is our all in all, and nothing compares to him. He is above all, he is the most precious, he is uppermost in our affections. You know, it's one of the most basic characteristics of a true Christian. They see the infinite value of the Lord Jesus. They see that he is precious, and they will be marked out by their love for him. And it's a privilege that is given to them to know that they are loved and they love in return. What did we sing? I am his and he is mine. To rejoice in that love and to delight in it. It's the characteristic of every true Christian to have a great affection for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I ask you tonight, do you love him? You might know about him, but do you love him? Is he precious to you? John 8, 42, if God were your father, Jesus said, you would love me. You know, if you are truly a child of God and God is your father, you will love his son. True believers marked by love for the Savior. Again, in John 14, the Lord Jesus sets out what it means to be a real follower of himself, what it means to be a Christian, and they will love the Lord. They will love Jesus and they will obey him. Look at John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. John 14, 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him. He goes on to say, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Stunning things. He who does not love me, does not keep my words. John 16, 27, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me. You see, when God intervenes in a person's life to save them, they're given to see the preciousness of Jesus Christ, that he is their only hope. It is Jesus or nothing. And they see his perfection. They see his sacrifice upon the cross. They see the triumph of his resurrection. They see that he is now extended, exalted, that one day he's going to come again. And they love him. And they want to follow him and obey him. And one day they want to be with him. A Christian believes in Jesus Christ as revealed in Scripture. They love Christ. And the prevailing characteristic of their life is they want to live pleasing to him. They have a surpassing love for Christ, compelled to love him. Friends, is that you? Is it me? Is my heart full of Christ this night? Or may it be so? May indeed God work in us in that way. Because there are great consequences if we don't know Christ. And that's what Peter says next in verse 8. He says, these great privileges, secure in Christ, you love Christ. But for those who don't know Christ, there are great consequences. Look at what he says in verse 8. 
But to those who are disobedient, those who don't believe, those who don't see the preciousness of Jesus, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And so Peter describes this picture of the world looking at the cornerstone and saying, no, not for us. The alignment is not right with what we want. This is not the stone that we want, so we need to get rid of it. We need to throw it out. And Peter quotes Psalm 118, and, you know, the world rejected. The word there means that they closely examined the stone, that they looked at it, and then they threw it out. It means that they examined Christ, and they looked at him, and you think of all the Pharisees and the religious rulers, and then they said, not for us. He's not the stone we want. You know, friends, it never fails to strike me just how much of a tragedy that is. You think of the way the Jewish people have been longing for the deliverer, the promised one, and they're looking for this kingdom, all the religious leaders, they're searching, they're waiting, they're looking for Messiah. Jewish mothers hoping that they might be the ones to bear the Messiah and centuries go past and then at the close of the Old Testament era you've got that 400 years of prophetic silence all the time longing for God's anointed one and then John the Baptist comes the great forerunner saying Messiah is near and they need to prepare and they need to repent and the anticipation reaches new heights. Messiah is coming. They're waiting to see the cornerstone and then Jesus comes. And John says, behold the lamb. Behold him. There he is. Messiah has come. Jesus Christ. And he declares that he's the promised one, the cornerstone, the foundation on which to build the lasting temple. And the religious leaders, they come. And they examine him. And they scrutinize him. And they question him. And they try to expose him and measure him. And when they're done, they throw him out. They didn't want him. He did not fit with what they wanted. He was not the Messiah that they had designed for themselves. They wanted someone to praise their empty religion, their self-righteousness, to meet their worldly wants, to give them riches in this world, to overthrow the Romans, to provide for their material desires. And he wouldn't do that. And so they rejected him. And more than that, they hated him. He was not the saviour they wanted. His message was not what they wanted to hear. He was worthless to them. It's the same today. People reject Christ and reject the gospel. They see no value in him. They reject the stone, but they were wrong. And they're still wrong today. Because to God and to us who believe, he is the chosen one, he is precious, and will never be disappointed will never be put to shame because the stone that this world, in all of its apparent wisdom, the stone that this world rejected is in fact the chief cornerstone, the true foundation, the only hope for a lost and broken sin-sick world. And then Peter goes on and look at what he says. He changes the picture slightly and he says, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offence And he draws from Isaiah 8, verses 14 to 15. And he speaks of Jesus in this capacity. But what does it mean? Well, it's an illustration of judgment. 
He makes them stumble as they seek to move on. And a rock of offence is a cliff that people are crushed against. And so the picture is that people are walking down the road and they want to get on with their lives. They don't want the chief cornerstone. They don't want Christ. And as they stumble over that stone, they go head on into a cliff face and they are crushed. The stone that they thought they could just throw away and cast aside becomes the very stone that they stumble over and are crushed by. And those who do not believe will one day be crushed by the one they rejected. Do you know, Jesus spoke of this in Luke 20, verse 18. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. It is a very sobering image. But why does this happen? Well, he says, they stumble being disobedient to the word. They stumble because they are disobedient to the gospel. Unbelief, disobedience reflect the same unsaved condition. True belief is marked by love for Christ and obedience to the gospel. Unbelief, rejection of Christ, disobedience to the gospel. And as one says, Christ is the great unavoidable. You will come to the rock and you either come to him as an elect precious cornerstone or you come to him as a stumbling stone and a crushing rock of offence. And why does he become a rock of judgment? Because people reject the word. They don't want the word. They don't want to obey the gospel. And they hate the God of the word. They hate the gospel. And you know, I pray that God would have mercy upon them. And if you're here tonight and your heart is hard in that manner, I pray that God would break your hard heart and that you would see your need. And it says this, to which they also were appointed. The outcome of their sinful disobedience rejection is sure. The consequences of sinful unbelief are unavoidable. The unbelief does not surprise the Lord, part of his eternal decree. They throw him aside and stumble over him, and they will face the judgment. And it is utter tragedy. Utter tragedy. And so it's a sobering end to this passage. The believer in the goodness and grace of God doesn't face that eternal devastation because they've been brought to see that Christ is precious, that he is who he says he is, that he is the only Savior, and we love him. We love him for who he is and what he has done. We long to worship him and serve him and obey him. And one day we will see him as he is. That thrills my heart. And I wonder if your heart yearns for that. And friends, we can be sure that he will bring us through because he has saved us. And he will keep us. We are secure in him. Do you know, there's a young man called William Ralph Featherstone. And when he was only 16 years old, he wrote these words. My Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. For thee all the pleasures of sin I resign. My gracious Redeemer, my Saviour art thou. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. He goes on to speak about how he loves because he was first loved. How Christ purchased his pardon on the cross. And how he's so thankful for the Lord doing this. And then he says, in mansions of glory and endless delight, I'll ever adore thee in heaven so bright. I'll sing with the glittering crown on my brow. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. 
now. What a wonderful testimony. 16 years old. Do you love Christ? Do you realize the incredible privileges you have been given by grace? Union with Christ, access to God, security in Christ, love for Christ. We are so unworthy. And yet we have been blessed immeasurably. And friends, you need to know tonight that the Lord Jesus never fails. He never disappoints. And even though we give him so much cause to be ashamed of us, yet he loves us and we love him. And I pray that tonight you will be able to sing with a full heart, engaged mind, my Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. There's nothing that compares to knowing Jesus, to being right with God in him and to being secure for time and for eternity. Amen.